This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio. Howard by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree. Uh, I'm broadcasting actually live from the Wharton campus. Not many times I've done that in the last few years, but back here live in the Wharton studio. Uh, Professor Siegel, my co-host, author of the, the Stocks for Long Run, the sixth edition, just released. You can get those copies. He's unfortunately flying back from London right while we're broadcasting live. We didn't get the chance to connect with the the European hours. Um, But I have some thoughts from him. He wrote them in to make sure we shared his views. Uh, Please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. The professor is senior advisor Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products. And the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. We're going to have a really great show. We don't have the professor live, um, but we do have Another economist, uh, a friend of the program, a friend of mine, uh, we've met uh, for the first time in, in Maine uh, at, at Camp Kotak. We've had a number of the economists from Camp Kotak come to the program, but Sam Rines, Corbu, uh, welcome to Behind the Markets. Welcome back to Behind the Markets. Hey, thanks for having me, Jeremy. Uh, we're going to get into all sorts of key issues on the Fed, the economy. I'm going to get into your background. Um, of of how you what what you do and what you focus on, um, give our listeners a little bit of that first before I, I get into the the details. Tell our listeners uh, how you came to Corbu uh, and, and what you're focused on. Sure. So I, I came to Corbu almost uh, well a little under a year ago, uh, and kind of what we do is we look at the intersection of geopolitics, uh, markets, and national security, and try to tie those disparate uh, pieces of information into actionable market ideas uh, for risk takers. And so who are the types of clients that subscribe to your your work? Uh, institutional hedge funds, uh, family offices, and RIAs are our general audience. Uh, we, we try to uh, provide you know, information that's relevant, uh, not simply for asset allocation, but also for those that are attempting to pick sectors and stocks to outperform the market. We're going we're gonna to tease out there's some possibilities that Sam's become more regular participant here. Sam and I are working on some things together. We'll see how they all come together. But uh, great, some great comments. Uh, I, I always look forward to hearing what's on Sam's mind. Um, so let's get into this week's activities. There's been a lot happening in the markets. It started with uh, you know, the big news of the week, I think, was the Fed statement. Uh, and and I, I'm going to reflect some of the professors thinking a lot of people here know the professor is not happy with the Fed uh, and thinks they completely are missing the picture. Um, and, and, and you sort of saw some of this very interesting reaction at the news conference when one of the reporters made a comment of like, oh, the markets are up following your statement that you're going to consider the cumulative impact of your tightening. Um, yes, it works with a long and variable lag, but uh, hey, we're going to forget all this cumulative impact that's going to take some time. But, you know, the question, there was a question on real estate. Um, this is one of the key things Siegel has been talking about. Uh, and, and so he, he got this question, well, how are real-time real estate prices factoring into inflation versus what's happening in the owner's equivalent rent? And Powell did acknowledge there's a few indexes, one that computes inflation when you sell the house uh, or renew the rental lease, and the other that takes the current prices, whether you're up for renewal or not. Uh, and, you know, unfortunately, the Fed is using sort of stale information. Uh, and whereas, you know, the Case-Shiller indexes for housing are up 40 percent to prior to the pandemic, the, the BLS inflation number is only up 10 to 12 percent. So, you know, there's going to be continued inflation from the BLS way of calculating, even though in real time, real life, housing inflation is going down. Um, you know, and so now Siegel's view is bec- they're looking at this wrong data. Uh, and eventually the Fed's going to realize their mistake. But until the mar- they really recognize that, he thinks the market could have some trouble uh, going forward. Be- Sam, any any 
Is is he off base here on this housing thing? Do you think Siegel is off base? What's your reaction to his his railing against the Fed saying they're way too hawkish? This inflation is coming down. We actually did some calculations, by the way, and and I don't know if this is completely ready for prime time, but if you annualized inflation recently using a real-time housing data item, using the latest one-month data, I actually think you have negative inflation. Not just disinflation, negative inflation. That's what our data showed. What do you think? So I think that's right. I mean, it's hard to argue with the actual data, right? I, I, don't, I don't think you can say, no, he's completely off base there. The, the, the question for me and what I always try to kind of frame things in is wills and shoulds, right? Will the Fed care? No. Should the Fed care? Yes. And I think that's really the get right here to Siegel's point is that should the Fed care that you're having significant inflationary reading distortions from shelter? Yeah, it should. Uh, but will the Fed meaningfully care? Probably not. And I think that's really the disconnect between what the should be done is and what the will be done is. And that's going to have consequences for markets and continue to have them uh, well into next year. Now, how much do you think, do you think Powell's just the most hawkish person at the Fed and and they got in the compromise in the statement when in the statement they did put in this sort of cumulative impact of tightening, that's probably the more dovish people. Still, nobody dissented from policy. Um, so, you know, this is one of the things that we've been talking about here is like, why is there so much groupthink at the Fed? Why isn't there more voices saying they disagree? Is it that that's another another question? I don't think there's a lot of political upside to disagreeing here, right? There's not a lot to being the uh, Fed person that decides to step out and say, no, we disagree. We think we should step back here to take a pause, right? There's very little upside to being that person because the number one thing going into next week and the election is inflation, right? That is top of mind. And when it comes to inflation, very few people are thinking of it as their housing price, right? They're not thinking of shelter and that type of thing. They're looking at the bright neon red sign saying gasoline is expensive, and they're looking at their grocery bill. And so until you get those two things down, there's very little upside for a Fed policymaker to say, I think that you know inflation is beginning to wane and we need to back off, right? That's going to sound a little out of touch with the people who – are going to the grocery store and filling up their gas tanks. So that's an interesting uh, thing about what's happening today in the markets. In the markets this morning, we're, we're up pretty strongly now as, as we're recording this live. They've actually turned red. Uh, but you've had some pretty wild moves across things beyond equities. Um, sort of interest rates not doing much. Uh, they sort of at, at first really pushed out the hiking cycle further from this jobs report. But you see commodity prices, and to your point on commodities, uh, you know, perhaps these are vindicating some of j Powell kind of comments. Uh, but you see, uh, and, and you can tell me if what you think is a driver. You had sort of this rumor mill, is China finally going to reopen? And uh, the speculation, like, or what are they waiting for by now? But um, the rumor mill that maybe March they start reopening. And so now you see, and then they, they talked about, well, maybe if we're not going to find the airlines, if they have a COVID positive person, uh, more people will start flying. You saw a boom in, in energy prices. But now you also have the dollar falling today. You have gold up 2.5%. You have gold miners up 8% while we're talking. What's happening? Is it all China in this commodity curve? I don't think it's all China, but a lot of it is China. It's, it's, it's pretty straightforward, I think, on that front. Uh, when China rumored that it's going to reopen for the 50th time, uh, that, had a pretty, that had a pretty big tailwind for the commodity complex generally and a pretty big headwind for the dollar. Right? One of the reasons that the dollar has been so strong is that on a relative growth basis, you know, the U.S. is a pretty good place to be. And you had the CNY move, I think it was 2% today. That's a significant tailwind to the commodity complex. Uh, the largest importer of oil is China. And when you have a currency strengthened like that and rumored that not only are you going to reopen and put more planes in the air potentially, but you're also going to put more cars on the road, uh, it's worth remembering that China has uh, the longest average commute time globally. 
So when they reopen, it's not just a, you know, airlines and heating and buildings, office buildings. It's also driving in cars. So this is a, it's a very big story for the commodity complex in general and oil in particular. Uh, and to a certain degree, it's also semi-inflationary uh, because the, the global economy has had a pretty good tailwind of not having to worry about incremental Chinese demand. And now you may actually have to worry about that. So I do think that that's probably a little more problematic for supply chains than people are anticipating on the margin. And that might feed back into some upside surprises from the FOMC if you continue to have the supply chain issues uh, cause cause hiccups within the goods complex. So, so the energy move makes a ton of sense to me from those rumors. Um, and what, now, when you see like silver up five percent and copper up seven percent, the gold miners are around. I heard there's some M and A activity today. Uh, I don't have the name in front of me, but I heard there was a twenty percent premium to one of the gold miners. Certainly, um, it's an M and A takeover. But it, it, do you think the gold and well, silver up five and copper up six? Is that tied to the same story, or is that a different story? No, it's tied to the same story, right? That's that's industrial metals. People, yeah. they're going to reopen. Do, do you see the construction? Is in, I guess you'd say the construction boom is what drove some of the copper and some of the infrastructure. Is or is it EV story? What what what's the? It's what? it's also an EV story. Yeah, right. It's a it's an EV story. Uh, it's a manufacturing story generally. Right when you begin to reopen the uh, Chinese manufacturing and. Copper being consumed there, uh, so it's a, it's a story of I would say manufacturing and goods generally and infrastructure uh, on, on the margin. But you know China is not going to have the same infrastructure boom that it had you know ten years ago, right? That's not its that's not the primary growth engine uh, this time around. Now they just, there's there was a lot of activity uh, while, while we're on China. We might as well stick with this topic. There's a lot of activity around the Communist Party Congress. You, you mentioned Corbu does a lot of research on geopolitics and mm-hmm. thinking around these things. What's your general sense of what you saw at the Communist Party Congress and, and uh, any surprises or how to go as expected? What, what's your, your, your general take? Yeah, it was, it was fairly expected for us. We expected it to be a fairly hawkish uh, party congress. We did expect there to be what I would call a non-Western lean to the outcome of the meeting, and that's generally what we've seen. But we we are also on the margin encouraged by the potential for a G20 sideline meeting uh, between the U.S. and China at the higher levels. That's potentially a positive for at least a moderation in the relationship. Uh, All we've seen recently is, call it tit-for-tat, incremental escalation on the economic front, uh, whether it was uh, the CHIPS Act and kind of restricting what chips can be sent to China. Uh, There's Chinese uh, exercises around Taiwan. It's been kind of a, it's been a, it's been a, I wouldn't say it's not a hot war, but it's, it's, it's a cold war in a pretty meaningful way on the economic front. Uh, One of the most interesting indicators of what's going on in China potentially today was the meeting between uh, Schultz, uh, the German uh, politician, and China. That was extremely important on the margin uh, because the the agreement allowed for vaccines from BioNTech to be given to uh, Chinese expats. And that's kind of stage one of potentially having an mRNA vaccine going into China more broadly. And that would be a significant uh, milestone in China's ability to reopen. That, I think, is something to really pay attention to here. Uh, But generally, I would say the party Congress was more hawkish than the markets anticipated in terms of the direction going forward. But it was generally in line with what we expected, and I don't think you'll see a significant overt change in China's policy. Right? China's policy towards uh, the U.S. and the West generally uh, has been you know, incrementally less friendly over the last five years 
uh, and it's been it's been reciprocated by the West. Yeah, this is one of those ultimate questions. Um, and they, and what's interesting, we did a just a, an anecdote from a webinar we hosted on emerging markets this week. We do these these series called Office Hours at Wisdom Tree, and we were talking emerging markets. We we had some 15 year anniversaries we were celebrating for strategies launched 15 years ago. And one of the questions we asked was, "Is China investable or not?" Half the respondents said uninvestable. Um, which was a pretty big number of half the people saying they, they, they wouldn't look at China at all. Now, sometimes, I and mean, that's what people said when oil was uh, going negative uh, back in COVID. And so sometimes the contrarian in you says, um, man, this could be a value play. If, 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 people, if that's the general sentiment, half the people saying no, maybe that is like a, a real value play. But then you have in your mind, um, yeah, Russia was a value play, uh, and a lot of our value strategy owned a lot of Russia, and then it was de- marked down to zero. And so I, I, I understand, like maybe for some people, the risk of going to zero is not trivial. Um, the question is, what is the risk of going to zero? And and so I'm curious if you, you and I both are playing poker. Uh, we 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 played our, our share of poker at at, at Cam Kotak in Maine. What what would you estimate the probabilities of the going to zero, and as well as the uh, the actual real escalation to something that be, becomes like the pariah status. Ooh. Oh, <laughs> tough question. It's, an, it's, it's a really tough question. What would I, what would I suggest the probability would be of having like of having to mark a Chinese 30% of the MSCI index and a large yeah. part of most emerging market strategies. Yeah. And I mean, to your point, I, I think, I would say the probability is still less than 10%. And, you know, that's on a time horizon, right? right? I would say, you know, call it in the next, in the next year, it's probably less, it's less than 10%. The problem is in my mind that you had Russian assets, you know, you did, who knows, but if you held Russian assets a year ago, the probability of marking them to zero was less than 10%. And today yeah. you're sitting on something that is marked, marked at zero. And, Crazily, you know, I mean, we're, we're only we're yeah. only helping Russian oligarchs and not helping U.S. investors. I mean, it's not it, I don't, it's a very questionable policy why we're, we had to mark these things down to zero. Even though you don't, I, I don't support what they did at all, obviously. Um, yeah. But I don't support the marking of these things down to zero and helping Russian oligarchs buy it back for free. Um, yeah, no, no, and that's and that's kind of the thing, right? It, it, for me, is for an investor, right? The risk of having a zero is, you know, being fired, right, you know, in yeah. a lot of cases. And so I would say the that risk of a less than 10% probability of a zero for a 20 to 40% weighting, depending, you know, if you're how you're trying to gain the index, if you're managing money, that's a that's a significant risk and existential, right? I mean, it's going to be very difficult to make that up. So I, I would I would argue that while it's less than ten percent, that ten percent is is a pretty is top of mind. Yeah. It's not it is not bottom of mind. And you saw yesterday, I, you know, one of the I would say one of the more sophisticated tech investors put a pause on their Chinese investments um, on the tech front. I mean, Tiger Global announced it. So that's that's pretty big. I think that's a pretty big indicator where investors' minds are at at the moment. And all you have to do. I would say is the probability changes on a daily basis, depending on what the probability is of China attempting to uh, do something with uh, Taiwan. I was trying to backdoor that question by the probability. I I, I was trying to get ahead of it. Um, And I would say that that's, that that's variable, right? If you, if all of a sudden you began to see significant threats towards Taiwan, you would have to probabilities up very, very quickly and begin to sell your Chinese assets very, very quickly. Yeah. And it's one of those cascading events where you don't want to be the person that's saying, well, this is value, this is value, this is value when there's on the border and then finding out that it's very deep value overnight. Right. I mean, this is we're talking with Sam Rines, who's an economist. He, he's at Corbu, does a research publication and model portfolios that he's building uh, to help implement some of his major themes. And, and we'll get into more of those. But the, you know, Sam, the, the this is like the, you know, you hear so much different and some of it's the very political. So you don't 
it's obviously very political, geopolitical, <laughs> but U.S. politics, and you hear different narratives from different sides. But, you know, people, a lot of people are confident that within a certain amount of time, in the next three years, five years, you put the number of years and they are going to eventually invade Taiwan. Now, you know, we have somebody on our team, um, Lee Chen Ren, who's 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 economist, uh, came from China, still has a lot of family members back there. And and she, you know, she tells me, um, you know, unless the U.S. provokes, unless the U.S. sort of really pushes it, they're not going to really invade Taiwan. That's not the, certainly not a, a timing that's in their interest at any ways today. But if they, they could be forced into it by the U.S., if poss- you know, possibly. Um, but I don't know. Do, do, you, do you put any stock into that argument? Is it, is it a U.S. versus China thing? Um, and then it's like, why does the U.S. care a lot about Taiwan is, is, is another question. I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, why does the U.S. care so much about Taiwan? I would say that that's one, a historical policy that the U.S. has held um, over time. It, you know, Taiwan and, you know, kind of from the Chinese perspective, Taiwan is not recognized by the vast majority of countries globally. It, it, it's not recognized as a separate entity from China. Uh, the U.S. is one of the few major powers that recognizes it. And so that's that's been a historical um it's much more of a historical policy. I, I would say one of the reasons that it is so critical and so important is that it's a significant, it controls a significant amount of the semiconductor capacity globally, right? It, TSMC is one of the world's most, both most sophisticated and largest producers of semiconductors out there. So it is strategically important from a number of perspectives. Uh, but from China's perspective, you know, Taiwan is part of China, right? It, I mean, it can it, it can hold its own elections, and as long as it's and it's too far out there, you know, I don't I don't really think China will care too much about the rhetoric that the U.S. is, unless you know the U.S. decides to provoke it. So I would agree that there is a provocation. Uh, you know, that's also some of the rhetoric that you heard from. Putin, uh, following the invasion of Ukraine, you know, that the U.S. provoked this by recognizing sending arms, whatever it might be. Uh, but in reality, the you know, had not allowed U- Ukraine to get into NATO, you know, had kind of allowed it to be kind of this gray area between Russia and the West. I, I think China is fairly comfortable with Taiwan's status right now, as long as it doesn't perceive that the U.S. is using it as, uh, call it almost a almost a Cuba-like entity off its coast. Uh, now, I, I, I tease that you do some model portfolio work, and I'm sure we'll get into more of this over time. But you know, one of your themes um, that I've seen is sort of friendshoring. You want to you want to talk about the friendshoring theme and and uh, what it means for not including China, including China. Who are who are our friends that we want to? allocate to as beneficiaries of this friend-shoring type uh, idea? Oh, I think the biggest winner um, is probably Mexico. Uh, Mexico has a pretty, it has a pretty large labor force. Uh, it's very close, so you don't have a significant amount of uh, transport cost, um, et cetera. So, you know, you, you, Built, you could see a significant amount of semiconductor capacity built there. You could see auto capacity built there. Um, you've seen a lot of uh, investment from Southeast Asian uh, companies into Mexico. Mexico has a tremendous amount of trade agreements uh, and actually better trade agreements in a number of cases uh, with East Asian countries than the United States. Uh, so I think you could see a significant amount of friend shoring to Mexico uh, you could see a lot of friends shoring to places like Japan, South Korea, uh, places with, uh, you know, that are developed or very close to developed nations with significant technological capacity and that have been friends for a very long time with the United States. You could see those really begin to um, gain some momentum. I, I, part of the problem with friend shoring is a lot of people think Europe as a friend for uh, manufacturing, et cetera. The problem is that you have to have energy and you have to have a stable supply of energy. So I think that once you begin to mix several of these pieces together, uh, you begin to have 
North America and some of the East Asian countries that have much longer term agreements for energy in place become really interesting places to watch over time. So you're saying Europe is is uh, out of luck for some I, time. I'm I'm saying yeah, until Europe, uh, I mean Germany is a phenomenal manufacturer. The problem is if you can't keep the lights on at your facility, right? If you can't do it, then you're you're just not a good place to produce. It doesn't matter that you're really good. Um, so I would say that it's a combination of energy security and friendship that is going to become extremely important over time. Yeah, and you're based in Houston. We didn't actually get into some good banter of, I'm here in Philly. We've got the ultimate Philly versus Houston rivalry this week, Sam. Uh, are, you guys gave us a good run. in the. E- I was watching both games last night. Eagles pulled it out pretty nicely. The, the scarier the first half than, than it should have been. But, uh, man, your Astros did pretty good. Yes. Uh, the... The Eagles game was really the, the Eagles game was phenomenal. Um, They're fun to watch. That, was, that was that was fun. That was fun to watch. It was it was surprising how well the Texans did. I mean, let's be honest. Yes, that, that was that was somewhat shocking. Um, not, I'm not sure that that you know maybe it was almost like an off week for the Eagles. Um, yeah, and the Astro, the Astros Philly series is just a phenomenal series to watch. It's just fun. It's, like you have you've got you've had some good pitching duels. You know, two of you know, you've had a couple of good pitching duels, and then you've had some good, you know, some good run game. It's been, it's been, it's been a really fun, it's been a fun series to watch so far. A good diversion from our content, but I, I gave that Houston background because you are deep in the oil markets, being in Houston, uh, and and as as one of the the elements of your commentary, do focus a lot on energy, uh, and so I think we could probably focus more on that. But in in the as we're, I'm going to want to wrap down the first half of our conversation. As you think about the outlook for oil today uh, and this issue for Europe, um, because it does seem like Europe is out of luck for some extended time, how, how what is, do you have a, let's say the next three, four years, three, five years on, on oil, what's your general sense? Are we going higher, lower? Is it just this sort of bubble that's going to come back down to earth? Or, or do you think there's this sort of longer term trend for oil being an issue and, and then particularly for Europe? I think there's a there's a longer term trend for oil here. I don't know that in three to five years you're higher than 90, but I think it's going to be pretty difficult with current investment much lower than 90, assuming you're not in some sort of recession, um, meaningful recession. Uh, and you're at 90 you're at 90 dollars, and guess what? China's still not all the way open. You still have you have Europe that's not in great shape. Um, and you have, you know, call it South America that's not that great a shape in terms of its ability to consume a marginal barrel of oil. So I would say you're you're looking at $90 a barrel in a fairly favorable market for lower oil prices uh, and a number of catalysts to go higher. And I didn't even have to mention the dollar there. Uh, over time, you know, energy is, it broadly is going to be an issue. Gas, a significant issue. You know, oil you can pretty easily ship globally. We have we've built a very uh, sophisticated infrastructure, uh, both in the U.S., Europe, Asia, uh, but we haven't really built out a, a really well done gas. We simply don't have that capability. Gas is more regionally trapped still, and that is going to be a problem for Europe at least in the near term. I mean, two to three years, you could see it maybe become a little more relaxed, but it's going to continue to be a problem. Uh, it's simply, it takes time to build infrastructure and it takes political will uh, to put it in place. And we'll have to see, we'll have to see what happens in the winter, but m- more comments on that later. Very good. You know, so I think we, we went in a geopolitical conversation just because of the China news that was dominating today. Um, but we start with the Fed. We're going to talk more about today's employment report, the economy, what this all means for the markets. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You're listening to Behind the Markets. But we got Sam Rines we're talking to. He's a managing director at Corbu. He focuses on the intersection of markets, politics, policy. He's also the author of After Normal, Making Sense of the Global Economy. Uh, Sam does a lot of work on the Fed. We had an important jobs report today. Um, and we talked a little bit about the 
the what, what Siegel calls the big Fed mistake. They're eventually going to open their eyes and see their mistake. But Sam, you also in in some of your mo- your model portfolios of of building things around, you've talked about a similar theme of of Fed policy error. How are you looking at today's jobs report? What does it mean for the Fed, the latest data, uh, and and how you think what's going to dictate policy here? Yeah. So, so yeah. So one of the one of the first themes that I had when I was building the model portfolios was Fed policy error, and it, at that time was that they hadn't raised rates fast enough, and inflation was getting out of control. And then it naturally pivoted to, well, the Fed is raising rates very, very rapidly and is likely to make another mistake, right? And as my mom was fond of telling me as a child, two wrongs don't make a right. Um, and so somebody somebody needs to talk to J-Pal. But I, I do think that there is something to kind of focus on within the jobs report. And yeah, there was there was 200 plus jobs created. So you still you're still seeing a pretty good uh, generation of uh, employment there. The problem for the Fed is that we were talking about lagging indicators with shelter. The problem for the Fed is that they've tied themselves to this thing called vacancies to unemployment, which is basically how many people are currently unemployed and how many job openings are there. And they have used that to model uh, the potential for a wage price spiral and the persistence of inflation within the system, right? So that's kind of, it's a, that's a very, it's an oversimplification, but it gives a general idea of what the Fed is thinking about and what they're watching. And it's interesting because today you had kind of what I would like to call a two-part jobs report. The, there's two things in there. The household survey where we uh, get the unemployment rate from, and then there's the establishment survey, which is the 260,000 jobs or whatever the number was uh, created. That's that's those are two entirely separate surveys. When it came to the household survey, it was it really wasn't that solid. It, you know, it saw a decline in the number of people that were employed, light um, decrease in the number of people who participated in the uh, labor force. Uh, an uptick in unemployment, right? That that generally would have been a little bit encouraging if it hadn't been for the establishment survey where jobs were being, I mean, 32,000 manufacturing jobs were created. I mean, that's not a sign of a slowdown in the labor market. So you get kind of this two-part kind of weird, no-signal type employment report. And I would say just this one really doesn't matter for Fed policy. Uh, it's just this is just kind of a okay. Well, we you know the 75 basis points that we've been doing every meeting for what feels like forever uh, hasn't really dinged. Oh, by the way, construction employment was up. Of all the things you would have thought would be crushed right now, construction employment was up. So I would say that in the Fed's mind, the Fed is thinking we haven't we haven't really broken the labor market yet. Uh, we still have a lot of job openings. Yeah, you know you know maybe this wasn't good enough for 75. December, but it, it supported the idea that 50s, either a 50, 50 basis point hike in December is probably the base case at the moment, and it keeps 75 kind of on the margin and you know kind of gives a little credence to a 25 basis point hike. But I would say this: if there was a way to tell the Fed that it hadn't done anything bad, this was the employment report to do it. You know, your and your comment is like very symbolic of what Bullard said on our show just two two weeks ago, where he he was talking about this employment situation, saying, "Oh, because unemployment is not an issue, and and the trends in unemployment continue to be a non-issue, we can keep hiking and we can keep doing this." It was like they want to break the the labor market, but it's like, why do you really want to break the labor market if you could get a if inflation actually comes down and it and, and the path is coming down, the real inflation is down, you don't have to break the labor market. Uh, you know the the one of the things you got was wages, and wages aren't keeping up with inflation. Uh, you know, if you get this, what, 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 what there's these fears about what drives a wage price spiral is actually wages going even more and and furthering the the spiral. But the the workers are just trying to catch up to break even to inflation. They're not uh, they're not there. But and but that's part of the problem, right? And you know, there's there's kind of two ways to look at wages uh, that I, that I like to do. And one of them is to look at how much how much a stayer, how much do you get paid for staying at a job um, on average, and how much do you get paid for switching? And if you look at how much switchers are getting paid right now, it is almost double in the inflation rate. 
Uh, so the ADP report said 15.7% for a switcher on a year-over-year basis. I mean, that's a huge uptick. And then, you know, if you're a stayer, you only get 7.5%, 7 7.7, something like that. I mean, the incentive to quit and go get a new job and go get paid yeah. more is way up there. And so that's the problem with this job openings issue, right, is if you have a lot of job openings where people can go generate a significant uptick in wages, people are going to do it. And that's going to continue to have this underlying inflationary effect. That, I think that's kind of the, the problem is that the aggregate says, oh, wages are underneath, you know, wages are underneath inflation. But if you quit your job and go somewhere else, the wage uptick well above the inflation rate. So there's there's this incentive to go quit, generate that extra income, and therefore spend and support the supply-demand issue. There, there's a lot of anecdotes around about how hard it is to find workers, I mean, that, which is why you see that, I think, that, that bump in pay for the quitters is, is there's a lot of anecdotes about just the, the, this, not a lot of I guess the slack, you know, there's not, you would think that some of these participation rates might increase with, with some of those dynamics, but you don't see it really. You actually saw the participation rate come down and for the working age pop come down more. Like what, what, the, what are these people doing? How are they paying for their lives? What is, what are, what are they doing, Sam? It's a great question. Um, the, the interesting thing is I'd like to look at the people who want a job line, it's it's on the bottom of the uh, A1 report that comes out with the non-farm payrolls. And that number ticked down. Like the number of people who actually want a job went lower. And I, I don't know if it's retirements, early retirements, uh, what it might be. But there's there's something underlying the economy that is allowing a significant number of people to just say, I don't want a job. Like I'm I'm either retiring or... I'm taking a break from the labor force. I don't know anyone who says I'm taking a break from the labor force um, without having some sort of backup plan uh, there. But there's there's a lot of people who just seem to not want a job. And I think that that is going to continue to be a trend here. It, one of the one of the longer term trends coming out of the financial crisis was that we had an underrepresentation of retirements in the system. Uh, I think coming out of COVID, when people didn't lose their savings, that they didn't necessarily have a significant amount of time left um, to spend that money, I think that re-accentuated the retirement story. You're listening to Behind the Markets on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. We're talking with Sam Rines, a managing director at Corbu, a research platform, a lot of commentaries, great commentaries. And Sam is also building model portfolios for RIAs uh, with the latest themes that he's thinking about. Uh, we just talked about Fed policy error as his first theme. Uh, and, and Sam, I, I, if, I'm, if I'm getting all the, the updates, I think you up, upped your weight to Fed policy error recently. What, what, do you, what do you do as a result of thinking Fed policy error? How do, how do you position within portfolios for that type of move? What type of asset classes are you buying, selling, those type of things? Sure. So the way that the way that I'm thinking about this this Fed cycle is it's going to be very very difficult to time, and it's going to it's it's a it's volatile, right? It's a it's an injection of volatility over time, because there's very little understanding of the reaction function if there is a reaction function. I think that's a pretty big if. So it's very difficult to have this sense of where, when, and how the Federal Reserve is going to stop. Uh, so I like to play it through shorter-term fixed income, um, whether that's uh, floating rate, whether that's corporate. Uh, I think you can you can construct a fairly robust uh, shorter-term play because if you do overshoot and you do have some sort of call it surprise downtick in inflation, the economy gets hit, they break something you're likely to see uh, short-term interest rates get cut rather dramatically and begin to have credit spreads come in rather significantly. And I think you can have some pretty outsized returns on the front end. 
Uh, I would also argue that the long end it would it would be interesting uh, to uh, to play, but I th- I think that's more of a when you see the whites of the eyes of inflation declining, uh, you can call it pivot uh, to the long end of the curve. Uh, as well, so I think it's it's very much a short-term uh, floating rate combination of floating rates and uh, some short-term corporate debt. I mean, you get some great yields there. Yeah. Uh, and waiting for the moment uh, to begin to barbell that out to uh, ten to thirty-year uh, type UST. And what's amazing is we build some models, like some income models that have a five percent income target, and it was amazing how hard it was. I mean, when we there's one platform where we you know launched it in of the beginning of the pandemic, where it was everything had five percent yield, not hard to get. And then I kept telling, I was going on these calls and saying, "Hey, to get five percent income, we're talking like middle of last year until end of last year. It was very tough to get five percent without taking a lot of risk." And I was looking at the yields on one of those models there. And we de-risked recently, um, <laughs> and we're still in like the 680 number. Like you can get pretty good yields, you know, and, and you could de-risk to get a lot of these yields. Short-term corporates at five percent, floating rate treasuries at four percent plus. I mean, you're getting meaningful yields now with the Fed cycle on the long end of the curve. I mean, the inverted curve makes it all very interesting. Like if the Fed does, if you believe these terminal rate hikes, you believe Jay Powell is going to keep going. And if you get to five, where do you think the ten-year is when the Fed fund is at five? When the Fed funds is at five, so January. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, where do I where do I think the, January? Um, man. I, I, I don't know. I would say it's it's probably around four. I mean, Hundred bips inverted. Have, wow. I would. I I think I think that would be a significant positive in the Fed's eyes that they are forcing a 100-point inversion uh, with a 4% unemployment rate. I mean, think, think about that for a minute. I mean, you're, you're sitting at, what, a 64, 65 basis point inversion right now? So, uh, you know, if you get another 75 basis points between now and the end of January, you, know, you take half of that and you're at 100. Yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be quite interesting times for the Fed and and the market. So, um, I think we 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 hammered on that issue pretty well. You know, one of the other comments from the professor that he wrote in, uh, you know, he talked a lot about one of the themes we've been talking about here is you know he fired four million plus workers this year and and you know he had real GDP essentially declined in the first half and to grow to basically be zero. And so it's like, what are what are all these workers doing? If you had sort of very negative productivity, record negative productivity, uh, I think uh, Q3 productivity started to come out, and it wasn't negative, um, but um, it, you know it was positive. But uh, do you have a sense on you know? Now we've had the Fed speakers. We had uh, Don Cohn on the program, and then Bullard also thinks that real GDP is going to be revised higher in some kind of benchmark revision in the future. Do you have a, a theory on productivity? Are these people just on their phones not doing anything? Um, somebody wrote in and, and gave us that comment. Uh, what, what else do you think these people are doing? So, one, I think I think there's a number of problems with reading too much into GDP, and we can I mean we can have an entire episode on that one. Um, but I would argue there's an awful lot of labor hoarding going on. If you're if you're an employer. And you find it very difficult to find that incremental employee that you think you might need in a year due to your growth. And you find that employee, you're likely to hire them and almost have like a and almost have individuals there to potentially do something. On the other on the other side, I would say, you know, manufacturing has been one of the few places where we've seen significant upticks in productivity over time, and the manufacturing sector in the U.S. is lagged, um, and that's partly due to supply chain issues, et cetera. So that mix shift in the average employee and who's being hired where, I think, is also part of the productivity mix. Um, Amazon was a significant um, hire, you know, did a number of hires for during the uh, pandemic. Uh, that changed uh, very, very quickly at the start of this year. Uh, and you began to see, I would say, places where the productivity gains were higher 
for the average employee begin to not hire as much in uh, leisure and hospitality, where productivity per worker is lower, uh, begin to be real drivers of incremental employment. So there's, I would say the mix shift within the system is also significant. You hear today, uh, and they probably have received their notices by the time we're now broadcasting, but I uh, haven't been on Twitter to see the Twitter employees. I think you know half the Twitter employees are being let go today. Um, do you see, you know, I, I, I think maybe you gave me this quote, or I, I think I heard it yesterday, so I think it was probably you, um, that, that there was some commentary about tech workers and how little some of the tech workers were working <laughs> from home. Um, you know, I get the Twitter people are saying people need to come back to the office. I've been a very remote first um, pro. I mean, I, our, our company went remote first. I am stacked in meetings literally all day long. So I, I, I don't have time to not do much. But the, you know, the, 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 there's some quotes about how little people are working from home. Uh, and, and I find it productive, but uh, I, I guess I should be open to hearing the, the counter narrative that people just are slacking off and not doing anything. Yeah. So, yeah, I think I think the quote the quote was uh, that there were some tech employees that made the comment and these were highly productive, good tech employees that made the comment that the average person in Silicon Valley works about four hours a week, four hours Um, a week. That that's getting away with a lot. If you're working four hours a week, uh, there's there's Siegel's comments on we're misestimating hours worked and there's your productivity decline right there. Do you yeah. think that's true? How, it, how true do you think I, that is? I don't. I think that might have been a little bit of hyperbole, right? I, I think they they may be exaggerating. They got multiple much, jobs. They're working four hours a week at multiple jobs. Yeah, four hours a week, multiple jobs, but or they're just not that much, right? And I, I would say there are productive employees that work that can work from home or work from anywhere, right? I mean, you know, you can you have a laptop and a phone now if you're productive and you want to be productive and successful. I mean, you can, you can work from an airplane, you can work from the back of a taxi, you can work on a train. Yeah. Uh, I would, I would say if you want to be productive, you can be productive from anywhere. I do think that there are those that adapted to working a lot less during the pandemic. I, I don't know how to say that nicely. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's an interesting, we're all going to learn. Um, you know, I, I have found the in-person meetings, they're certainly useful. Uh, you get together, uh, and and you know, I we found it at, at Wisdom Tree to be more of a bonding social experience. We're going to get together for investment committees to get around the table, have a dinner with our team, but not for sitting around doing meetings. And in fact, we'd probably still do meetings on. T- you know, we use Teams, uh, and and it, and because you know, it's actually been productive. Actually, if you even find sales meetings. Uh, to be more productive, and we use a lot of tools and demonstrations, and 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 frankly, the tools link. I mean, we I tried to do a lunch meeting yesterday. We brought the the laptop out. It's just not as good as on Teams. Like you know, you could much more closely follow what you're presenting on Teams than on on a laptop over a table. You know, but um, it's an interesting and, dynamic. And, and kind of to this point, one of the you know, if you look at one of the major tech companies, had a very disappointing earnings season due to its video streaming service, and I don't know the rules about naming names here, um, but uh, video streaming service that happened to have an ad revenue decline. What they called out was declines in game gaming engagement from elevated pandemic levels. Hmm. So to Professor Siegel's point, I think there's a significant amount of uh, call it volatility in what happened during COVID and what's happening now. Uh, so maybe maybe that's a sign that people really weren't working as much on average when they were outside of the office. It's a lot harder to play a game on your phone when you're sitting next to your boss. It's a lot easier to do it when you're on a video conference for an hour and a half listening to a presentation. And well, this will be interesting to see. You know, there's the official GDP, and then there's corporate profits. And corporate profits have held up pretty well, absent the strong dollar, right? I mean, the strong dollar is hurting some multinationals. Well, even with the strong dollar, and so another one of the themes is I call it Pepsi pricing power. Love and this one. It's this really int- what? I love this one, Pepsi pricing power. Yeah, yeah, and it's this really interesting kind of concept where you look at Pepsi volumes, and they're like one percent. 
But you look at Pepsi pricing, and it's between 9 and 12%, and in some cases for different regions, 20%. And it's incredible how much price through an inflationary period. I mean, and it, and it goes for a, a whole host of companies. I mean, I, one of my notes ran through several of the uh, S&P 500 companies and just looked at volume and pricing. And, and almost all of these companies have low to no gains in volumes, but they all have tremendous gains in pricing. And it's, it's an incredible dynamic that you're seeing on that top line that's playing out on the bottom line. And it's keeping that bottom line, call it, you know, in line and growing uh, in the face of some what you would consider significant pressures. So to your point, GDP, you know, looked a little rocky there, but you just had these, you had these earnings reports from staples companies, from manufacturers of machinery. I mean, everybody, I mean, even recreational vehicles, like little side-by-sides. I mean, even those, tremendous pricing power. So it's very difficult for me to kind of see where you're going to have this breakdown in the economy when you're still pushing prices at these levels. And consumers, I mean, they're not growing volumes, but they're not pushing back that much. I know, and this is this this example of quantity versus price, real versus nominal GDP, and uh, that Pepsi pricing power story is a great anecdote. On we've often said, you know, well, what is the main risk to bond is inflation. Stocks, companies are real assets. Their brands and their IP, they can grow their. It, cost of goods very often with inflation over time. On average, the market as a whole has done a very good job of doing that. It's one of the things we talk about in stocks for a long run, about why stocks are real assets. A lot of questions on that question. This is a great example of that exact thesis. Mm-hmm. Sam, we have about 45 seconds to a minute left. Just for people who we've been talking, we've alluded to your model portfolios, is for people who want to research more, give us just 45 seconds on how you're building models and who should contact you to get learn more information. Sure. So uh, I build models, uh, portfolios using uh, macro uh, themes and bottoms up. So look for the themes that are global and then look for the companies that can exploit those in a meaningful way. Um, so it's I, I like to call it bottoms up macro. Um, if you would like to learn more, you can follow me on Twitter at Samuel Rhymes. Samuel Ryan's on Twitter is a good place to find him. Uh, and I think, again, his macro notes, a lot of interesting stuff. I'm sure we're going to be talking with Sam more about these models over time. Uh, I'd like to thank our sound engineer today in the studio with me, Chris Tooks, um, our producer, Patty Hall. Be sure to check out our Behind the Markets podcast. Follow us on Biz Radio 132, me, Jeremy D. Schwartz. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. 